Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Empower Man Podcast. It's your boy, Mikey G, coming to you live from the very, 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 very free state of Florida. A thousand people a day are moving here. And I am joined by the man who had a night with Patron, woke up the next day and said, oh, my God, what did I do? The man who once owned a Jersey Shore versus Hamptons battle DJ CD that he'd play in his 2001 BMW 3 Series on the Hutchinson River Parkway. My boy and yours, let's give it for the one and only Greg A. Tador, the first Greggy T. Welcome to the special episode, what is this special episode, uh, July 4th episode of Empower Man. Thank you, Mike. As always, the intro is on point and 100% true. All of that is true. So, But you did forget one thing. I did. Uh, yes, sir. My windows were murdered out with tint. So they were. All my cars get tint. But uh, happy Fourth of July. This is a, a very exciting episode. We we've been wanting to bring this guest on for a while, and we will get to that in a second. But happy Fourth of July, Mike. Happy Fourth of July, Greg. You know it's it's a great time of year where we can really take pause, or we like to say take stock of what how grateful we can be and what freedoms we have um, as Americans that we can have the uh, freedom of expression to say what we want to say on this podcast without um, having our opinions, our thoughts, our education that we're trying to give people uh, taken away from us. Um, you know, and with that in mind, got to always give a shout out to our first responders our cops, our firemen, our EMTs, thank you so much for what you do. We love you and thank you. Absolutely. Have a safe 4th of July. And as always, to all the military personnel across the United States, across the world, be safe. And we really appreciate and love you and keep up the awesome work. Now, Greggy e. T., I really like that hat. <clears throat> Where could I get one of those hats and what does that hat mean? These hats are probably sold out now, but my boys at GBRS Group, surprise, surprise, I love them. They have the best stuff. But I want to give a shout out to MDP, Moral Decay Patch. Check them out on Instagram. They make some really cool gear and they have some really awesome morale patches and love their work. Want to give them a big shout out. They're really cool. And as always, I want to give a shout out to my boys at Nine Line. Thank you for furnishing half of my wardrobe. <laughs> and to Canada Dry, who makes great ginger ale, but horrible air quality. Canada. Way to go. But we're going to get into the real crux of our conversation tonight about the 4th of July. When I think of 4th of July, Greggy T, I think of all those 4th of Julys we spent in the Hamptons and Montauk and how much fun we had and the barbecues and the beach. The day drinking. The day drinking and all the fun that we had. Yeah. A lot of it we can't really say because, you know, it was a different time. Allegedly. Allegedly. And, um, you know... Behind all those good times, we had so many men and women that died for us so that we could do that. And the 4th of July, what it means to me, it just gives me a sense of understanding, pride, and education of the very fabric of this country and how it was founded. And just to be so thankful and so grateful that I live in a country where I can pursue life, liberty, and happiness. And I also think about the families, the generations that gave their life so that you and I can have this platform. They gave our life so that your kids and other kids can can 
live the American dream. They can be whatever they want to be as long as they work hard and those values. And with God being a major equation, a major part of the equation in our country's fabric, just the um, spiritual uh, feeling that I get being an American uh, gives me a sense of pride, Greggy T. I agree. And to me, the 4th of July is, I, I related to education of the country's history and the, the very feeling of patriotism to me. And I feel my opinion that it's, it's gotten less and less generation after generation, unfortunately. And I, I would like to see it revived for the times when we were younger because it was, it was alive and kicking and you can see it flags everywhere. People were proud. People walked with their chest up. People were proud to say they were an American and all of that. That's what the 4th of July means. It just means like family, freedom, patriotism, and also sacrifice. Yeah. And I can remember as a kid, a special shout out to Hyde Park, New York. I used to go up there as a kid and we'd have the big July 4th parades and they would throw gum out. And I remember being a, or candy out and you would run with all the other little kids to try to get um, that, those, those things. And it just, July 4th, just, it brought, brought it all together. Family, friends, yeah. community, you know, we were all united as one. It, you're absolutely right. The word that hits me there is united. There was granted we were younger, but there was no sense of this, daily weekly hourly this this division that's just shoved down our throats 24 7 there wasn't any of that when we were younger and i it's sad to see and i'm trying to my best to shelter or deflect as much as i can for my kids growing up because i don't want any of that extracurricular bullshit noise going down their direction but fourth of july i want to give a shout out to nurse high school where i went because they always had awesome fireworks. Everyone from town went, it was a big deal. They put on a great show and it was always a lot of fun. Looked forward to it as a kid. It was like the, the kickoff of summer. That, and, and again, I think we had similar experiences, just different towns. I apologize for cutting you off, but I just got a great All thought. Good. Doesn't only happens uh, when I drink Canada dry, do I get great <laughs> thoughts. So uh, Greg, tell us a little bit more on how you, try to shelter your kids from the noise that's going on. How do you kind of give them a sense of pride and history about this country? It's a good question. It's also a little different for me. They're so young yet. They're going to be two and going to be four. So it's very easy right now to keep them from all the, the BS and the noise. But I can tell you, I mean, you and I used to watch the news all the time. This is, this is, fourth week. I don't watch the news. I don't, I don't want to hear any of that. I'll figure it out. And it's always negative for the most part. So I just want to keep them focused on having fun, being a good Samaritan, being a good human manners, all of that stuff. That's my focus when they get, as they get older. And those are the values that men and women fought for. And our, our our special guest is going to talk more about that a little later on in the show, but let's break down the constitution because a lot of people don't know what the constitution really is if they say it on cnn or they say it on msnbc i'm not picking on those two they'll say it on fox news this way we're all one under one the news in general the media have a way of transcribing 
the Constitution. Divided. So Divided, so it fits their agenda. Mm-hmm. But one thing that we can all agree upon is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is in our Constitution. It is the fabric of our country. So for a man, we weren't meant to live mundane lives. We were not meant to live boring lives. We've talked about it before, but we're going to really put it in this context. Greg, when life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is preached to you, what does that mean? Like, how do you take those words and really build off that? It's a great question. I'm pretty good at compartmentalizing things. So I can take life, liberty, freedom, and all that and apply that to my daily routine with just, you know, one-on-one me in my own head and my actions taken into my job and all of that. I can also apply it to my family and I apply it with my friends and it becomes in a general umbrella, a true lifestyle with a clear vision of what I want and the people that I want around me because I want like-minded people. I don't want that boring, mundane nine to five. That's just not my thing. And we grew up and I'm sorry if I'm speaking for you, but I grew up in a huge melting pot. Nurshaw High School had, I don't know how many languages at the time. I went to school with kids since I was little from all over the world. And it was awesome. All different religions. We were all cool. We didn't care. There was none of that, that stuff. And I like that. And I think it's super important at a young age to be exposed to that. And I think, I think just allowing people to do their own thing. And I, I don't care what people believe in their sexual preferences. I don't care about any of that. You can dress up as a cat every day if you want to. That doesn't bother me. But what bothers me is when it starts coming towards and interfering with my kids and my family and my friends, when it's just brought to me at a level where there's no room to breathe. I don't want things shoved down my throat. Truly, I don't care what you do. Do your thing. I'm not bothering you. But I don't want to be labeled something just because I don't want that confusion around my young kids. They're way too young for that. And they're impressionable. And I just, I feel there's no need for that. Like, keep it away from the kids. You hear this narrative, and I agree with that. I'm not a bigot. I'm not anti this. I'm not, you know, whatever label that they want to put on people. I just don't want that around my kids. Leave the kids alone. I agree. Let the kids be kids. Let them have that innocence and joy that God meant for them. And we talk about God being a part of our country. It's in our currency. In God, we trust. My license plates having God, we trust. And you've seen kind of a shift where people at the top trying to get God out of the equation. But the again, when we talk about the fabric and the roots of our country, you know, the Bible talks about where there's jealousy and self-ambition, evil and disorder soon to follow. You know, the Bible, Jeremiah talks about, um, you know, the plans that God has for all of us. Like we weren't meant to, he, he's meant to, to prosper us and let us flourish, not to harm us. And we have forces in this world that are trying to steal all that joy from us, right? The, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and rob and destroy. And 
putting God in the Constitution, putting God in the root of our country allows us to understand, hey, God's purpose is to give us love, joy, and happiness. And when you get away from that, you're seeing exactly what's going on in this world right now in 2023. Greg, what does happiness mean to you? Happiness <clears throat> to me, true happiness is just a general state of being, being present in the moment and just enjoying whatever company you're in. It could be you're totally by yourself enjoying it. It could be with your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or whoever. And it can also be with your kids, your friends. It's just being truly and solely in the moment without any outside factors, just enjoying minute to minute, hour to hour. That's it without any distractions or thoughts, what I have to do next week or, you know, the mortgage I have to pay or the car payment or any of that. It's just in the moment, free, free. That's what it means to me. Yeah. I think for me, happiness means peace. Yeah, means exactly. Peaceful, peaceful at yep. where I'm at, being content. You mm -hmm. know, if you've got, if you're content and you've got everything taken care of, like that's real happiness. Yeah. And again, not to reference the Bible, but you know, a lot of the things that this country was founded on just keep sounding mundane and routine comes from the Bible. And, you know, the more I evolve in my journey as a Christian, I'm, I'm starting to see that. Um, so happiness for me is peace. And Greg, one thing in, in the Constitution that we talk about are liberty or liberties, right? So is there anything that you can think of right now that... Well, first off, when you first started working on yourself and making changes and, and evolving, um, did you feel like liberated from a lot of the thoughts that you had prior to, you know, your self-evolution? Yeah, I, that's a, I definitely did because I don't, they don't, <clears throat> I don't allow them to take up any memory or space anymore in my life, in my brain. And that by itself is, is freedom and, and you're way lighter. Absolutely. And what advice would you give someone that is wants to kind of like if they have something that's plaguing them, mm -hmm. right? whether it's depression, anxiety, getting over a girl, trying to step into a new career. Remember, it's in our Constitution, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. How would you help someone liberate themselves from a situation that might seem pretty much destitute? I mean, for me, I would ask the person what do they truly want out of this or what is the problem? Let's get to the root of it first. We, we can't move down the field until we know what's holding you back. And it could take a long time to break that down, but I'd want to know where their head's at. And I want them, I would want them to map out the goals, where they want to be and the steps they think they need to get there. And I want to, just reiterate to them, nothing's impossible. Even if, you know, people, like I, we've said this before, some of the closest people to you will hate on your ideas and hold you back. And if you truly want to do something, you got to go for it. So if somebody is depressed or whatever, let's find out what is, what's the root of that depression? What is making you depressed? Okay, now we can identify that. After we identify that, Let's start chipping away so it gets smaller and smaller day to day. And then you start, like we talk about wins and losses. Now your wins start slowly outweighing the losses. Now you have one good week. 
which is great. You haven't had a good week in a while. That one week turns into two, turns into a month. Now you're six and then it just starts snowballing. Now you can start going to wherever the direction you want to go without all that baggage and that extra weight that you've now looked at, owned it and identified it. And now you've moved on. And if it rears its head down the road, now you know what it looks like and you can tackle it and get rid of it that much quicker now. And it won't affect you as much. Yeah, those are, those are great steps. Um, and, and to add on to that, we got to be adaptable as men. Absolutely. We've talked about it on prior episodes. You got to be adaptable. We are so grateful to live in a society that gives us that flexibility. Mm-hmm. It's not a, you know, one size fits all, or it's not like, you know, people that have nothing, people that had everything, you know, it, we, we, there's a little bit of, of adaptability where if you don't have much, you have the ability to work towards a goal to give you much, but it all comes down to what makes you happy and identifying um, the stuff that's holding you back or the stuff that you need to be liberated from in that life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And a lot of the time, the stuff, absolutely. A lot of time that's holding you back. Unfortunately, it's the people you hang around or the relationship you're in or the area that you're in. And you, and it's sometimes that's a real eye opener for people. And it's hard for them to come to that realization. And now you're at a fork in the road and you only have two ways to go. You have left and right. If you want to pursue true happiness, knowing that you have to let that person or those people or that area go, you got to do it. But if you choose not to, I always say this, then I don't want to hear it after that, the complaints, because you, this has now become your choice. So you make your bed, you got to sleep in it now. Right. And and to put a a bow on this part of the Mm -hmm. uh, show here, it's in the constitution guys, girls that are listening as well. We have the right, the freedom to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. Remember that freedom isn't free, which is the underlying theme of this podcast, this very, very special podcast. Just off the top of your head, how many of the how many of the Bill of Rights do you remember from school? <laughs> You're an asshole. Um, I am. Not, I not am. many. Not many. Right. Because I one- hear them, obviously, but I don't know them off. I used to. But of course, we know your favorite amendment is the Second Amendment. <laughs> you are the Second Amendment heavyweight champion of the world, but soon to be lightweight because you've been fasting with the Panda Man. Thank you, Kyle. Shout out, Kyle, kicking Shout ass. Just did my third Kyle. one. Just did my third Ooh. one. Love and it. I, I witnessed it too. I've been getting phone calls and updates. <laughs> the, the guy is a fasting champion, yes, which sir. is awesome. It's awesome. Um, but you know, it's funny when I was doing research for the show, a lot of the Bill of Rights you know, I forgot. And yeah, you know, you learn it when you're in third or fourth grade and then Mm -hmm. how often do you use it? Right. If you don't use it. And it's definitely not replayed and shown to you enough in my opinion. No. In fact, they're trying to re paraphrase what these mean to kind of suppress these freedoms. And we saw that during the pandemic um, with the challenges, you had the pros and cons of a lot of the things that, uh, that went on during that, that, that time. Yeah. And, um, you know, we want to kind of switch gears here um, and really dig into um, what it takes to fight for this country, what it means to fight for this country, those bill of rights, 
those 10 Bill of Rights that we are granted in the Constitution that our founding fathers gave us that are now trying to be kind of reinterpreted and you're kind of trying to change the way history is being uh, communicated to the newer generation. Um, and right now I want to bring on somebody who is a true American hero. He uh, is a friend of mine. We go back probably five, six years. Um, he spent 29 years serving this great country. He comes from a military family. He was uh, in the Pentagon. Um, he was a Army Special Forces Green Beret. Um, spent time in the 82nd Airborne Division. He is happily retired, living in North Carolina. Proud father of two. Consults with the government uh, with strategies um, on how to keep our country safe. It is my extreme honor and privilege to introduce Mr. Chris Cadigan. Chris, welcome to the Empower Man podcast. How you doing, man? Hey, Mike, thanks very much for that great introduction. Um, I got to say, um, it's really great to be here with you and Greg. And, um, you know, I haven't had a chance to listen to every single episode yet, but the ones that I've had a chance to consume are really great. And I think what you guys are doing is needed. And uh, now is the right time. And the conversations that I'm having um, with lots of people, but men in particular, among different generations, especially across different generations, um, are informed by the topics that you guys are discussing, um, especially a place for uh, men to come together and talk about the things that are really important to them and things that they don't normally talk about, to be honest. Um, so I think what you guys are doing is great. So thanks for having me. We really appreciate you taking the time. It's we, we feel honored that you're here. So thank you very much. Yeah, and thank you, uh, Chris, for, uh, and I echo Greg's sentiments. Um, let's just get a little background on you. Uh, obviously, a very impressive resume. Um, what was it like growing up in a military family? Well, while you guys were talking about your memory, your fond memories of the 4th of July, yeah. I was kind of having my own reminiscence about that. And yeah. for me, um, growing up as what we say, a military brat, um, and we say it with great, you know, affection. Um, a lot of my um, childhood was um, on military bases, uh, sometimes with an air show. So, you know, the Blue Angels or um, uh, the Thunderbirds might come into town. And uh, being able to see, um, you know, that precision and um, the dedication that it takes to put on one of those shows and all the um, you know, pilots that would come and fly their aircraft, you know, that's the kind of thing where it really does, um, sink in as a, as a kid, uh, the kind of dedication that our, our country has and to meet those people who really were heroes of mine. And so, you know, I did grow up around the greatest generation, um, and who put out flags and red, white, and blue bunting and had, uh, cookouts and fireworks and uh, we're really unabashedly uh, patriotic um, during those celebrations. Um, and it is a really fond memory for me and my cousins when we get together to talk about, you know, those, those celebrations in particular. And sometimes they meant neighbors would come over and sometimes they meant that, you know, distant family would come into the town um, or, you know, work work friends um, from different people's um, offices would come from New York City or Boston. Um, I did a lot of summertime um, in Maine. And so 
Maine on the 4th of July is a really special place. Um, and uh, thankfully, um, you know, people come together during that time and um, you'll see a lot of American flags flying um, and they really do fly year round, but 4th of July in Maine is a special time. So, um, you know, growing up in a military family um, kind of left me with the knowledge that it was part of my duty and responsibility um, to uphold um, the things that my family um, felt were important. And uh, the fact of the matter was, um, you know, they went off and served their country, but also, you know, defended freedom. Um, and whether that was in Europe or whether it was um, in the Pacific, um, that greatest generation really didn't talk about a lot of the things that they did. And sometimes the stories they told were sort of from, you know, kind of the Baba Black Sheep, uh, you know, or the, the Kelly's Hero style of storytelling where they would talk about like life, um, you know, with their, with their, um, their fellow soldiers or their, their fellow, uh, you know, Navy uh, CBs, uh, my mom grandfather's case. Uh, and then my father, um, who um, would sometimes go to work in uniform, but most of the time would go to work in a, in a suit, a three-piece suit, uh, back in the days when guys wore three-piece suits to work um, and a tie and shoes. And so, um, you know, for a really long time, I knew that um, service to our nation was really part of our family. It was our family business. And it was something that, um, you know, I, I know a lot of families, um, big families, you know, there's always an expectation, say, in a, in a, in a say, an Irish or, or Italian uh, Catholic family that somebody's going to be a priest, you know, somebody's going to be a doctor, somebody, you know, there's always these expectations. And in my family, um, there was a pretty good bet that somebody was going to serve in the military. And um, eventually for me, that was, that became my choice. What, <clears throat> so obviously you were Green Beret, you went through selection. I have a ton of questions. We're, we're not going to get to all of them, but before all of that, what made you choose that branch? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, <clears throat> in, in fact, at Special Forces Assessment and Selection, one of the questions they ask you and you have you kind of write an essay is why are you here like why did you choose to do this and um my answer was very simple i wanted to work with the very best um so as um as as an officer um in a parachute infantry regiment in the 82nd airborne division i got to see i got to work with really amazing non-commissioned officers um, and I happen to be in a, a, a unit that was so vaunted in terms of its history and had such great um, quality officers and non-commissioned officers, many whom shaped not just the 82nd, but the Army and um, the last 20 years. I worked for um, a number of different people who became very senior leaders in the military. And um, whether it was a, a general officer or a sergeant major, and they left, they left an imprint on me in terms of professionalism. And um, the first Green Beret that I remember encountering was um, when I was a Boy Scout. And then the second 
um, Green Beret I remember encountering was an instructor um, at Norwich University, which is where I went to college. It's the nation's oldest private military college, and there is a Green Beret position on the staff there inside of the Army Department. And, and that uh, Master Sergeant, uh, Green Beret, was incredibly skilled, incredibly gifted, but his real gift was with people and with developing young leaders. And so having a mentor like that, someone who was incredibly professional at what they did, um, but was also incredibly skilled with people and could tell you very quickly, hey, you're being a dumbass, like fix yourself. Um, and know that it was okay to have a good time here and there, right? Like there's a time to have a good time. There's a time to be a professional. And later what I would learn was the big boy rules, right? Big boy rules are, you know, when it's time to turn it on and be a yeah. professional. And then, you know, like when it's okay to cut loose and, and have fun. So um, by the time I was, you know, a platoon leader in the 82nd Airborne Division, I got the opportunity to see Green Berets around Fort Bragg in the various units and people getting ready for training, um, people that were doing training. And then the other thing is pre 9-11, those were the guys that were leaving and going off to work. They were, they were leaving and going to get to do their job. And I spent a lot of time preparing. We used to call it going to the show, right? Like just like baseball players call, getting called up to the major leagues, the show. And, and that's what we would say. It's like, when, when are we going to get to go to the show? And um, for us, that meant war. And for young men who are preparing to do that, that's kind of the thing that you want to do. You want to be able to go and do your job. Um, so just seeing them around Fort Bragg in their uniforms with their green berets on and knowing that they're doing something, I don't know what it is that they're doing, but I want to do that too. And then watching, um, and this is, this is sort of part of the secret um, that's not so secret in terms of recruiting, we want really good people. And so you would watch people that would leave and go to special forces assessment and selection and get selected. And then they would go off and do training. And, you, and as you started to think, you know, Sergeant Smith is a really solid performer. I would love to work with him again. And he wanted to go and do this. That was the kind of, that was really the main driver. I wanted to work with the very best and I wanted to go where the nation needed me. I wanted to, I wanted to go where the call was needed um, or the, where the call was heated. Um, and so for me, that was, that's the very probably too long answer of work with the very best people and go where I'm needed. Um, was there a, was there a specific skill set that you really shined in? Well, you know, in, in special forces, we're always looking, we're looking at what we call the whole man concept, right? So we're looking at um, whether or not you're trainable. And that's what special forces assessment and selection is really trying to do is determine, are you gonna be successful in the qualification course, the special forces uh, qualification course? And um, for me as an officer, um, going through the special forces detachment officer qualification course, it was, you know, am I trainable and can I pick up a variety of different skills? So, you know, an 18 alpha needs to have a little bit of ability in a number of different things, including his ability to plan and lead. So can you take 11 other highly performing, um, really well-skilled total professionals 
and lead them to success on a given uh, problem. And so um, that's the kind of thing that we look for. And so I'll let that kind of uh, speak for itself. Um, I was um, successful in navigating both the selection process, um, going through the training pipeline, and then leading uh, special forces detachments at various levels um, over the next several years. Awesome. I appreciate the insight on that. Um, what are your thoughts on the recruiting now? Do you feel our standards have gotten lower? Do you feel like that same standard of excellence is still there? So um, I'm going to, that's a great question. And so I'm going to answer this uh, in a couple different ways. First of all, you know, in terms of nationwide recruiting for all of the services, um, according to published reports now in the in news outlets, is um, you know some of the services are having a difficulty meeting their um, recruiting um, numbers. So we'll start there, right? Like that's one level of of the discussion that we should have, and and there probably are a number of different um, reasons why that's the case. One. Uh, we, we know that between uh, conflicts, um, there are a variety of different inputs, including, you know, the, the, the economy, um, possibly um, the nation's view on service. Um, there are a number of different inputs and, and, and I should, I should qualify everything I'm about to say is I'm not, I don't have a background in recruiting. I didn't serve as a recruiting officer. Um, at any level, I have I have a couple of friends who did. That's a tough business. Um, commu communicating about the, the nature of public service isn't hard. It's getting usually um, young people and parents to understand um, what is being asked of them and then what the um, outcome of that could be. I had a very rewarding experience. Um, so for me, it wasn't a hard sell. And for some people, maybe they're using the college benefits uh, to join. So all that being said, um, if you're if you're looking to learn a skill, if you're looking to um, you know be a public servant, if you're looking to um, be trained and educated, um, you know the military might be for you. Um, Special operations forces, whether it's the Army or the Air Force or the Navy or the Marine Corps, is then going to um, recruit from that available pool, right? So if nationwide and across the services, recruiting numbers are down, you're already starting at a place where, you know, your recruiting pool just isn't as large. Yep. Um, and, and frankly... Um, you know, we have a saying that we're three-time volunteers, right? So first you volunteer to serve in the service. Second, you volunteer to be a paratrooper. And then third, you volunteer to serve um, in special forces and go through um, special forces assessment and selection. And then the training that's required to see if you're a competent professional in your area. So if we're already starting in a smaller number, um, and you're already starting in a place where um, you're, you're really recruiting from what's available and the services have to kind of reconcile that on their balance sheet. Um, and, you know, frankly, probably part of this discussion is um, not everybody loves the fact that, you know, maybe you went through all this effort to recruit, you know, um, 
Mike or Greg, and, and they came into the service and they were focused on a particular thing. And then they come to you and they say, Hey, I want to go do something else. Uh, I want to join special operations. And by doing so, um, you start losing, let's just say you start losing your best people. Sometimes that's, you know, an uncomfortable situation. It's an uncomfortable conversation to be having internally. Um, and the, but that is part of the reality, right? So if, if all of your good people are leaving to go do something else, um, you know, you, it's not just um, that they're also going to do something else. Maybe you need to also look at what you're doing internally. Are you operating? Are you providing your people the best, um, you know, job um, environment in in their in their area? So there are a number of different inputs there that are part of the conversation. Um, you know, you asked about standards. Um, again, I was operational uh, my entire uh, time. So I didn't, I didn't serve in recruiting and I didn't serve at the schoolhouse. Um, I will say that in special forces, unlike in a lot of other places, um, serving in the schoolhouse is actually a really, it's looked on favorably. Like we want green berets training other green berets. We want people that have, um, field experience coming back to our schoolhouse and teaching people what they need to know. Um, I think, you know, the instructors that I remember from my time in the course that left the biggest impact on me had combat experience, um, had um, lots of years as a Green Beret, um, serving in a variety of different places around the world. And so when they, when they gave you advice and when they were coaching you and when they were providing you context to why you were doing the thing that you were doing, you listened, like you knew, um, you know, okay, what I'm doing isn't ridiculous. Um, and, and that's really important because as we're recruiting people to come to say SFAS, um, the assessment and selection, every task that we ask a student to do um, has been done. One, it's been done by somebody before. We're not asking you to do something impossible, but more than likely the thing that you're doing was actually done in combat conditions, right? So like you're not just- world. Yeah you're, yeah. you're not just climbing a ladder. You're climbing a ladder that someone had to do while they were being shot at, you know, like someone was trying to hurt your feelings while you were doing this. <laughs> um, and so that's, that's contextually part of, um, you know, any of the activities we're going to ask you to do. And the other thing is we're looking for people who are thinkers. Um, we're looking for people who can think on their feet um, and, and we can provide them some practice at that and rehearsals on what we're looking for. And then we kind of let them loose in a, a closed, but very live environment. And we see how they do. And, um, and at the end of that um, period, you know, they kind of get a, again, a whole man, 360 degree um, view. And I guess I should say whole person. Um, we do have women that um, are navigating um, the courses now um, and the women who, um, have uh, attempted it. We've had some um, successfully uh, go through the course and graduate. Um, so it can be done. Um, but I, and I, and I wanted to save this part. You asked a very specific question. I'm told that the standards have not changed. Um, now the army in particular has been evolving its physical fitness um, process and its physical fitness standards. Um, the Marine Corps, uh, also has done this, um, over the last few years. And, and what I'll say is, um, you know, the old army PT test of push-ups, sit-ups and two mile run 
is is one part it's one aspect of what we're going to assess someone on in terms of the physical part but there are a number of other physical um uh, events that are also going to take place where there we'll just say there is a mental component right so it's not just the physical but it's also mentally how you're kind of handling the physical stress um, you guys know from your years of physical fitness, sometimes it's the mind that goes first, right? Um, it's not just the, the physical, uh, failure of muscle, but it's also the mental stamina to continue to push yourself if that's what's needed. Um, and then often, oftentimes, um, in special operations and in special forces in particular, we're going to ask you to push yourself beyond where you may, um, have thought you could go. And, um, and then we're going to ask you to do something really mentally challenging, um, immediately following that. And, um, some people navigate that pretty well. Um, and just because someone will just say fails a task doesn't mean they failed the task. Um, cause there is a certain amount of expectation that you're going to man, you're going to be successful on a spectrum. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so there is some of that. And, and so, um, you know, I'm told again that uh, the standards have not uh, dropped. The standards may have evolved over the course of the different criteria that are being used now to evaluate. Um, and to be honest, there is an expectation that we have to graduate a certain number or a certain percentage of each class. Because you got to remember, the force needs right. the individual soldiers to go and fill those required uh, military occup occupational specialties. So, you know, for special forces, that's, um, you know, the, the medic, the engineer, the communication sergeant, the intelligence sergeant, um, the operations sergeant, um, as well as the command and control element that's usually a warrant officer or a captain. Um, so we got to graduate, you know, if we, if, if, if we have a zeroed out class where no one graduates, that means that there's a, there's a unit out there that can't deploy. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, um, I've heard time and time again, um, where uh, for each graduating class, it's spoken with great humility that 100% of those graduates is absolutely ready to go be on a special forces operational detachment alpha and serve in the ranks. That's what we want. We want qualified people to go out there and fill the ranks because you want the guy to your left and right to know his job. Um, you know, I, I can do dy dynamic tracheotomies, but I'm probably not your first pick for that. Right. Like we need, we need the special, <laughs> we need the special forces medic to be able to mm -hmm. do that. Um, I'm just probably a really capable second pair of hands for him. Understood. Did you get to learn? I'm, is it true? Cause I'm a civilian. I don't, I, I know a little bit about, certain branches did you get to learn a different language is it the green berets that usually get embedded with the with you know the indigenous people and try to build up that relationship before you know troops come yeah that's right so um you so you that's a great question by the way um greg and 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 your that was a multi-layered question so yes sorry uh no no it, it's a great question in fact um that gives me a lot to respond to. So one, yes, um, language is absolutely critical to what we do. Um, it's critical to our understanding of the culture of the people that we're working with and alongside. Um, 
it is Army Special Forces or Green Berets that are the ones that go in usually early in operations. So, you know, if we all remember back to the early days in Afghanistan, um, it was Green Bray teams with other governmental agency operators that were making contact um, with um, the Northern Alliance, um, meeting up with them, uh, teaming with those local indigenous populations, usually using language skills. And sometimes it's not necessarily the language of that country. It could be a third party language, like, you know, like say in a former um, colonial country, like uh, it, it might be French, say in parts of Africa. Mm -hmm. um, and using that language and cultural understanding and knowledge of the local geography and building rapport, which is something that we um, understand as being incredibly uh, important to our relationships on the ground. Um, and then being able to help take that indigenous unit and turn it into a viable force um, to go and conduct military operations, usually shaping operations um, that either are in advance of further US troop involvement, like in Afghanistan, um, or to help um, in a foreign internal defense role, help um, a country's government, legitimate government who is closely aligned with our security interests, US security interests, um, to defeat, say, an insurgency, um, which we've done in uh, other places uh, around the world. So, um, you know, I, um, I, I was kind of raised around the Jesuit priests um, and, you know, those Catholic priests uh, had language skill and they had um, cultural understanding and they kind of went out into the world. And um, you, those guys are kind of considered the special forces of the Catholic, you know, church. And I've actually seen people have written things like that. And I've, there's a couple articles out there that are very similar to it. And, um, you know, some of those, some of their concepts are very close to our concepts, which is go, um, you know, speak the language, live the life, eat the food, listen to the music, um, and take your skills and make something happen. It seems so incredibly difficult to win them over because you, obviously you're not a local, you're an outsider. And also it just seems so, in my mind, dangerous. I mean, I know you probably went, what, small units? And did you have any, like, QRFs in place? Or, or did, when you were dropped off, like, you were in it, then what? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and sometimes you're it. Uh, sometimes your QRF is not so Q, right? Uh, quick is the, is the first word in your reaction force. And sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it's not so quick. Um, you know, um, th you know, there are a number of factors there in terms of, uh, time distance analysis and, uh, what's available for platforms, um, rotary wing versus fixed wing and, um, you know, size of force required, um, taking a look at, um, you know, sometimes you have to build your own quick reaction force. And I had to do that in a number of different places um, over the years where, you know, the, one of the things you want to do as your task organizing your indigenous force is you want to build in the ability for them to save themselves, right? And that might be you you take in, in a case of a 12-man a special uh, forces operational detachment alpha, you might split that team into multiple um, subordinate teams 
uh, both for command and control, but also possibly for uh, special reconnaissance um, or to command and control or resupply um, a site. And um, when you do that, there are a number of different factors you got to take into account, including how do I go QRF this outstation where these, you know, now I've got two guys out there with a group yeah. of indigenous folks, and now I have to QRF them, which is a big, it's a big deal. That's a big responsibility. And so, you know, there wasn't any time where there was a low risk. I mean, I, I'm just going to, you know, yeah. Uh, and that, and it kind of goes back to my early days of being told, you know, would you want to read about this on the front page of the Washington Post or the New York Times above the fold, right? Um, and so the calculation of risking yourself or risking um, the lives of your men, uh, many of whom you know really well, you know their children, you know their their families, um, you've had barbecues, you've had Fourth of July barbecues with their families, Um you know, is, is part of the, um, decision-making, right? Like, Hey, this guy's competent. I'm going to send him out there and we've got his back, um, is, is the quick and dirty, but there's a lot of planning that goes into that. You know, like, can we go over this road fast enough? Can we have, do we have the helicopters we need? And when, um, when we do have catastrophic events, those are the ones that unfortunately become movies. Right. And so yeah. you've got, um, you know, you've got, well, you've got plenty of movies out there that really kind of talk about some of these events and the reaction forces. And sometimes the reaction force now becomes um, part of the plan. Like now we got to go recover the reaction force. Yeah. Um, those things do happen. And, um, you know, we try to operate on what's called a PACE plan, P-A-C-E, primary, alternate, contingency, and emergency. Um or, you know, my favorite two is one, one is none. Right. So like, you're not gonna, you're not gonna send guys out unless you have the ability to go get them. It's just mm -hmm. not going to happen. Um, Cause you want to be able to retrieve your people and you want them to have the confidence to be able to do their job without worrying about whether or not they're going to be left kind of hanging out there. Um, so it's a great question. One last question on this. What did you ever find it difficult leaving a village or a certain group of people that you were embedded with for X amount of time? Yes. Yeah. I can elaborate on that, but the short answer is absolutely. Understood. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Uh, that was, I, that's awesome, Chris, about the pace plan. Um, I definitely want to find out more about that because everything you're talking about, we can apply to our everyday lives as men. That's right. Women. And it just listening to all this knowledge, this is really, really cool. Um, you were telling me earlier before we came on the air that you spent three years in combat. Was that like three years in a row or was that three years over your 29 year career? Yeah, that's... You were in Afghanistan. Sorry, you were in Afghanistan and Iraq. You were the first one there. Usually the first one to get there, the last one to leave. If you could just share uh, an experience, what it was like on the, the front lines there, fighting for Greg and I and everyone who's listening freedoms. Just give us a perspective of what that was like. Yeah. Um, well, um, I'll try. Uh, so, <laughs> so the first thing I would say is um, the front lines is sort of relative 
Um, I think uh, anyone that's paying attention right now to what's happening in the Ukraine with uh, Russia and the Ukrainian forces, there's sort of what we would call a frontline trace where you've got, you know, two, two uh, sort of a meeting engagement or um, um, deliberate defenses that are, are kind of dug in and, you know, you've got an assaulting offensive force that's trying to probe and figure out where those are so that, you know, there is a front line, right? Um, I was never in a place where there was a line. Um, I was surrounded uh, and and we would kind of joke, you know, we're, 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 um, we're exactly where we want to be. We're surrounded. Um, because they and, dropped you in, they knew you were there. Like there was yeah, no secret, right? And, and in, in my case, I was uh, usually in a place where um, we knew we were being observed. We knew that there was um, certainly at least uh, reconnaissance of what we were doing, if not actual targeting. Uh, although we were targeted every, <laughs> in every place we went, we were targeted. And um, so, you know, for us, the front lines is like whatever you're looking at right? Like whatever is right in front of me, um, which changes the way you operate. I mean, it just, it just does. And um, it changes the way you think about, it's the way you think about life and the way you think about death and the way you think about your teammates. And, um, you know, so in terms of being, you know, like I, like you were saying, sort of dropped off. I mean, we knew where we were going. We knew why we, ne we needed to be there. And it's also part of the reason in answer to your last question about, did I ever have feelings, you know, about leaving? I mean, when you work at something and you're developing an indigenous force and you're helping them in some cases, helping them understand democracy and understand that they now have a choice, that they have freedom, that they have a responsibility, the uniform that they put on. In some cases, if it's military or police that you're working with, um, or you're standing up a, a military or police organization from scratch, um, that they have a role and responsibility because in some cases, they'll be the first person from the government, this new government that people will see because they're not used to seeing government officials that are legitimate in their country show up and provide them any kind of kindness or direction. And so um, you were about to say something. I could, I could. Yeah, I was just going to ask a question specifically yeah. about that. Did you, yeah. did you experience more welcoming for that in the places that you went to? Were people open to that, that idea of like choice and freedom and democracy? Well, uh, that's a great question. In Afghanistan, in the early days, yes, it was certainly a great hope, and you could see it. Um, in the faces of the parents as we helped open up schools and that we helped to be able to resource, um, get the water going again, get electricity going again, um, you know, provide them. And in, in some cases, the tribal elders and, and um, governing bodies uh, resources to, to do their job more responsibly um, in their way, because that's the other thing that Green Berets are um, kind of well known for is that we don't want to do something for you. We want to help you do it in your way. And um, and, and quite honestly, and this isn't, um, you know, uh, a way out there statement, 
that's largely, I think, what was lost both um, in Washington, D.C. and also to the American people of telling the story of Afghanistan in particular was, hey, they don't do things like they do in Minnesota or in Chicago or in Los Angeles or in New York City. They do things the way they do in their country. And we're here to help them be the best versions of themselves. And um, and sometimes that's going to be uh, a lot different than the way we do them. And we need to understand that. And we can still, there are, you know, the Venn diagram, there's still 80% goodness here that we can we can help them with. Um, so I think that that story was largely not well communicated. Um, and so, you know, in terms of working in a particular place, helping them develop, um, helping them secure themselves, free themselves from oppression, um, stand up government at a local level, um, and then and then govern themselves and and create a space for uh, reconciliation and reintegration of the opposing combats, the combative force, right? Those those combatives, you know, at the end of the day, if there's if there's a challenge to the the legitimate government, at the end of the day, you want the opposing side to put their weapons down and come in from the cold and become part of the government. And I've operated in places outside of Afghanistan where that's certainly the case. And one case in particular is um, Colombia, which is a place that most Americans largely wouldn't know that American special forces were advising Colombian police and army. And we helped them um, to disarm the armed revolutionary forces of Colombia to, to reintegrate into the population. And now, you know, we've had a mayor and the current president of Colombia, our former um, combatants. Um, that's, you know, that's actually the goal, right? It's actually the goal of reintegrating those people and having them become part of the legitimate government. And in representative democracies, it's a matter of time. It's got to be a good feeling, right, to see that success story? Well, it certainly saves lives because, you know, a 50-year insurgency that is fueled with violence um, isn't good for anybody. Yeah, it's a long time. It is a long time. Yeah. <clears throat> You know, there's so many ways that we can take this going forward. Oh, I'm loaded. Uh, I've, uh, <laughs> I have so many questions that, uh, you know, and Greg can tell you that I love yeah. to talk a and B, I try to be hyper prepared and just, just listening to you talk, Chris, I feel like I got a masterclass in, in history, in leadership, in, uh, government. And really, um, I would love to hear more about your Afghanistan experiences. Uh, obviously, we can go down a whole other road about how that was handled. Obviously, being there, um, I'm sure you have some feelings on on what you saw, what we all saw a couple of years ago, and and obviously with the resurgence of of certain political uh, parties that are now running that country. Um, I just want to wrap it up here, Chris. Is anything else that you want to add? Because we're definitely going to bring you back because I know Greg has more questions. I have one more question for this episode. For, for this you. episode. For okay. this episode. <laughs> we we really want to get you back. Um, oh, yeah. I don't know oh, how yeah. much you can say on this or how much you want to go into it, but the, the, the major question I had for you tonight was, what is your take on the military today? Um, well... Um, I've taken my uniform off and, um, 
it, it was, you know, I'm not, I'm no longer serving in the active uh, force. Um, I am sometimes in a position to uh, teach, coach, and mentor um, the current force uh, in some areas that I'm considered an expert on, um, for which I am very grateful. It's um, good work, not just because um, there's some income derived from it, but it also allows me to be a patriot and it allows me to help uh, the nation um, continue to strengthen our position and be fortified. Um, and it also allows me to, to work with um, the current force, the young men and women who are serving today, um, which is quite honestly my favorite part. Um, just like I wanted to serve with the very best, today I get to walk among them. And, um, you know, I'm wearing a sport coat or, you know, a suit, um, but I get to um, help them with whatever the, the subject is that we're working on that day. And um, I, I get a lot out of that. What I, what I will say from those experiences is that um, they're as dedicated as all the men and women that I've served with over the years. Um, they are as committed. Um, they have sacrificed a great deal. Um, you know, in terms of the sacrifice that the families make, um, and they're, they're forced to make decisions on whether or not they are going to take an assignment, whether they want to stay in place so that their children can finish high school. Um, you know, those are the, those are the realities of that commitment to public service. And, um, you know, that's sort of my view now, um, they're, they're as good as, they're as good as you can, you can ask for. Um, you know, I think that um, we have a very capable force and um, I hope that, um, you know, we continue to, to find good leaders, both elected officials and serving uh, public servants who can, um, you know, steer the ship of statecraft and, you know, navigate the rock filled waters that are out there that await, um, you know, the ship of state. And um, when needed, you know, the men and women of um, our armed forces will be uh, ready to do their jobs. I appreciate the answer on that. Oh, I'm gonna slide one more in. Who do you think, in your opinion, is our nation's biggest threat at the moment? That's a great question. And, and I think that there are probably a, a couple of different ways to go with that. So it sort of depends on what your metrics are. Mm -hmm. um, I think, um, you know, I, I, I do. Let's just do immediate. Yeah. Do I, time I mean, as a metric. I, I think a couple of things. One is um, we need to be careful of our own views and how we apply them. Um, I would say, the conventional wisdom might point us to China in terms of um, the way in which China could certainly um, project power or project economic um, challenges. Um, you know, right now I think the you know, the term that is being used is competition. So the competition. Right now would probably be led by China. Um, I think Russia is probably less so of a of a competitor, but they certainly are um, 
they're a violent um they're a violent actor right now and and that should be of concern to the international community um i think there are a couple other actors out there that um are certainly of concern um because of the way in which they they make decisions and iran and north korea are would make that list and then and then quite frankly there are some um threats from you know non-state actors that i think we need to be paying attention to and some of those non-state actors are fueled by our competitors and and so we have to be really uh, diligent and rigorous about how we view some of those non-state actors um, because they become proxies for other people's um, wishes so you know um, as as we look at um our border and what's coming across our border and who's feeling that and why they're doing it. Um, I think the American people really should be asking some hard questions about that. I um, agree with that. Yeah. Did I answer your question? Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I know it's, it was very, um, you can go in a million different directions. So I appreciate it. So many I think there's a number of different ways to, to, to answer that question based on sort of your parameters. Yeah. I think you, you, you nailed it with the different metrics. So I appreciate that. Mike, um, I, I wanted to say um, that I'll, you didn't have a chance to meet him, but um, a good friend of mine came to Virginia, came to the DC area, and he was my interpreter. Um, so we were able to get um, one of my interpreters who was probably, you know, when I, when I first worked with him in the early days, he was probably 15, maybe 16 years old. And, you know, now he's... Um, He's in his, I, I think he's in his late thirties, um, maybe early forties. He's got three boys of his own. Um, he and his wife have become U.S. citizens. Um, he has an MBA. He is incredibly bright and articulate. He's one of my favorite people to spend time with. And, you know, um, that's one of the things that's made um, this conflict, um, you know, special i guess um you know those feelings that we have as we leave a place and we've become close to the people we've worked with um you know in many in many ways they they keep us safe when we're deployed you know the local population can keep us um alive and we'll and we'll pitch in and and they they are defending their country and they're helping us help them do that. And uh, in this case, you know, he was hunted. He was hunted by the Taliban and his family was hunted by the Taliban. And um, now he's here and he still has family uh, back home. And I, I, every time I talk to him, the first thing I ask him is how's, how he's doing. And then I ask him how his family's doing. And very specifically about you know members of his family and what they're up to and how they're doing and where and of course where they're living, um, and it makes me um, incredibly well. I'm humbled, honestly, that he chose and he didn't have a he didn't he, he didn't get on a plane and you know easily fly here. He maneuvered over two and three other countries on that continent, and. Worked, we worked 
for years through the State Department to get him out. And um, he was able to come, he was able to bring his family and now they're American citizens and they're contributing uh, to our great nation. And so, um, you know, I, I really just also wanted to mention that um, we're very close with those guys. And, um, you know, as, as things were closing out in Afghanistan uh, two years ago, people were rolling up their sleeves to make sure that we were getting our friends out, many of whom helped keep Americans alive um, while we were helping them secure their country. Um, and we should all be, um, we should be humble about that, that they chose to come here um, and believe in us in the gift of of freedom that they get to enjoy. So I just wanted to give a special mention to those guys. That's awesome. I'm glad that's, you did. That's awesome. I mean, I, I can't think of a better way to end it, Craig. Do you have any final thoughts? I mean, no, absolutely not. It's a, it's a, it's a great note to end it on. And I cannot, I know Mike can't, we can't thank you enough. We really appreciate it. And we just basically scratch the surface. I'm just like foaming at the mouth with, with so many uh, questions. I'd love to know more. So hopefully we can schedule you again. We would love to dive into some more topics and um, happy fourth. Really appreciate it, Chris. Yeah. Chris. Happy fourth of July. Thank, thank you, you so Thank you so much for everything. Thank you for your service. Absolutely. And, um, you know, enjoy your fourth. And I miss those steak dinners at Capitol Grill, man. <laughs> I, I do too. We'll have to get back there soon. Absolutely. If you come down to Florida, man, there's a Capitol Grill in Boca about 15 minutes away. We'll tear it up. <laughs> All right. Take you up on that. God bless, Chris. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Take Be care, safe. Fellas. All right. All right.